This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Scripture Screen is produced by the Poly Theater interns and student staff. You can see our lovely interns here uh, shooting this as a TV show. But more importantly, uh, my student staff help me with all the Q&As. They do all the research. They help make sure I don't do anything stupid. Uh, and a lot of times they do get compliments coming after, wow, it was a really great Q&A. To be honest with you, it's not me, it's them. Uh, and if I make a mistake, it's because I didn't listen to them. Uh, and especially tonight, we have a very special uh, student today, Taylor Owens, who helped me produce this. Uh, she's an example of somebody who's going to keep me online and straight, but she's the one who calms me down before the interview. So I'm going to give a very big shout out to Taylor, who will be on stage in a second. <laughs> with Don. Uh, but tonight, our Don Hertzfeld is a two-time Academy-nominated independent filmmaker whose animated films include It's a Beautiful Day, World of Tomorrow, which we just screened, The Meaning Life, and Rejected. His, world, his work has played around the world, receiving over 250 awards, and recently made a guest appearance on The Simpsons. Did you guys see that? Yeah. <laughs> Seven has filled the screen in competition at the Sundance Film Festival, where he's the only short filmmaker to have won the overall Grand Jury Prize for short film twice. But in regards to UC Santa Barbara... While at college in the UC Department of Film and Media Studies, Don wrote and directed four animated shorts, uh, Ola Moore, Genre, Lily and Jim, and Billy's Balloon, which we'll be screening later. So please welcome to the Apollo Theater stage, Don Hertzfeld. Um, okay, so artists draw on personal experience to create art. So 60 days from now, will a meteor strike the Earth and most everyone here will die horribly? And did your future clone self tell you? Yes. <laughs> that is a thick stack of questions. Are we doing... Oh, wow, okay. I'm going to get comfortable. <laughs> oh, boy, okay. Last time you I'm, here, you actually... I did it, but you answered some questions so awesomely. I actually threw out most of them. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, but I thought tonight we'll start a little about your characters. Let's get sure. into a little... So we'll talk Emily the adult. Uh, her classic line, I'm a third generation Emily, contacting you from 227 years in the future. I'd like you to know that everything is going well in the transfer and cloning process with very few signs of mental deterioration. I love that line. It really sets the tone <laughs> of her character up. She's slightly emotionally detached. But, uh, so how did Emily evolve for you? Where did the infinite for the grown-up Emily start? Well, I think it's really hard for me to remember now because... Um, I was writing this back in 2013, and I, I didn't really commit to it until I knew I could get um, Emily Prime, mm. um, the little girl. Um, I, I had pieces of, of the story, and I knew where it wanted to go and some things I wanted to see them do. Um, but I knew I needed a little girl voice, and I didn't want to fake it. I didn't want to do uh, one of those cartoons where you have a, a grown-up doing a fake cartoony kind of voice. Uh, it just doesn't feel right. It doesn't, it doesn't feel real. Um, and uh, luckily, I had a niece um, who was four years old at the time, and she lives in Scotland, and I only get to see her maybe like once a year. Um, and so for me, it was really uh, seeing what I could get out of her first um, and not committing to the movie and really getting to... Um, wrapped up in it um, until I knew I could, I, could, I could get her to work for me. Um, uh, uh, because without her, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to go forward. 
Um, and so, and so she was the first step, uh, and then, and then the writing made sense after that. Yeah. I like her really her her main first line after the long soliloquy is I had lunch today, right. <laughs> classic childlike. So, uh, so Emily Prime was really the heart for you. Is absolutely, that? absolutely, uh, and uh, it was so much fun. I mean, I, I mean, at first I thought I could. I mean, very naively I thought I could direct a four year old. <laughs> um, and you learn really quickly that you, you cannot direct a four-year-old. Um, you really just have to let the four-year-old happen. Um, and uh, I, I, I kind of thought I could get her to say some lines, forget about it. You know, I mean, maybe a better director could, could have tricked her or something, but I, I, as soon as I could, you know, I'd ask her to just repeat things. It just it sounds weird. It sounds she's become self-conscious. Um, and I didn't want that. I wanted her to just be herself, um, because she's. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure a lot of us have experienced four-year-olds in our lives before. Um, but it, it is really is this, this age of wonder, and, and everything is new. And you know, just walking to the park where, where my mom lives would take. Um, I mean, it's a five-minute walk, but it would take us forever because she'd <laughs> stop every every few steps and say, "Look, trees." You know, look, a car, look. And you're like, yeah, that's okay, that's a car, that's right. And, and, but you realize, this is all new for you. You know, I, you know this, you, we take all this for granted, but for her, it's just like everything is so cool and amazing. And, um, and so I got an app for my iPad that could um, record in reasonably high quality. And I liked that because it wasn't intrusive. Like, there, it, there wasn't a giant, like, boom mic in her face while we were <laughs> hanging out. Um, and... So I, I could just like click the button and have it next to us while we um, drew pictures together and played with Play-Doh and talked about the world. And um, it's, it's really just her being herself, 100%. And, um, and we were there. We had a visit over the holidays of uh, 2013. And then I went back to Texas, where I live, and she went back to Scotland, where she lives. And uh, it was very interesting because I wound up with these sessions and I, I started going through them, and uh, first of all, it was hard to find clean takes because she's scribbling with crayons as she's saying things, she's kicking the table. So uh, I had to do a lot of really microscopic audio surgery just to remove all these noises that she, that was like exterior noises, because it wasn't really professionally recorded. Um, and then um, it was just a matter of okay, I have my story. You know, and here she says this. You know, what could she be looking at? Um, what 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 could they be talking about when she reacts to this? Um, and and so I started taking things out and rewriting um, Julia's half of the dialogue, which I hadn't recorded yet. Who who? And she's a buddy of mine who recorded the voice of adult Emily. Um, and she's an illustrator, and she had never acted before. And we can talk about that next too, because that was kind of kind of odd. Um, uh, but I, I just started rewriting and, and finding ways to make her reactions and questions fit. And, um, uh, and, and, and some of it was little, like when, when she says, uh, uh, Simon, um, that was the name of one of my mother's cats that was just walking by. At the time. <laughs> She's like, Simon. And, and it just was such a great you know, real reaction of her. So I, uh, that became the voice of, of the monster thing. Um, so it's just finding little connections and things. And it's funny now to describe it because it feels, I mean, just hearing myself talk about it, it seems like a really difficult way to write a movie. Um, uh, 
but it feels natural because Emily, if you did script it, it wouldn't have been from a four-year-old's point of view. No. You needed the four-year-old to take you in directions you didn't want to plan on going. I think so. There's a certain freedom to it, and 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 that is something that's very hard. And something I always struggle to get into animation because animation is the least spontaneous way to make a movie, yeah. and, and finding ways to make it feel fresh is is really really valuable. Um, and and for me, just having those sessions, suddenly as a writer, all of the pressure, like a lot of the pressure, not all of the pressure, but a lot of the pressure was was lifted, because suddenly I didn't have to come up with everything. Um, you know, I had these sessions. She was in Scotland. I couldn't go get more. Um, so, so no matter what, I had to tell a story with what she, what came out of her head, and um, and in that way, it was it was very much like working with an improvisational actress, who was maybe a little bit insane, and, and then and then vanished. <laughs> um, this is all you had, and you had to figure something else. And so it was a, it was a puzzle. It was a neat little puzzle to to kind of to kind of put together. And you said Emily. So Emily had no. Your, the, the adult Emily had no experience, as you pointed out. So then, what was that? Yeah. Um, How did you work with her and her voice and dialogue? Julia is. Um, she's an animator herself. She's an independent animator. She's um, done some wonderful stuff. She's also maybe more popular as an illustrator. Um, uh, she, she she draws a lot of animals and scarves. <laughs> I, I give her a lot of grief about it. It's it's very very cute. Um, but her, her animation is actually really surreal and dark, and so uh, there's a real nice edge to it. So you connect her, obviously, because you're a little... Yeah, I... I, I uh, surreal of that. We actually met for the first time on a stage at Sundance. We both had films there, and then we were in the same program. We were brought on stage, and um, we hit it off. I mean, what was interesting was, um, obviously, she's got a great voice. She's got a wonderful voice, and... Um, but primarily, the, the key for me in wanting her to do it was she's, she's funny. She's a really, really funny girl, um, just hanging out in, in everyday life. And um, that, to me, was way more ex- important than acting experience because she, she could tell a joke. And, and that is not, that's not necessarily easy. That doesn't come naturally for everybody. Um, uh, and and uh, I just knew she could she could pull this off. And I remember uh, I flew her out to Austin for, I think we recorded all of her stuff in about two days. And I didn't really need to direct her very much. She really got it. And she's, she got my delivery because I had narrated my previous stuff. Yeah. And I was really happy to not do that anymore. <laughs> um, but she also knew, uh, she, she, I, and I hadn't realized this, but there's a certain cadence to the way I, I narrated and the way I told the previous stories, and she kind of knew to pick up on that to, to please me. <laughs> um, uh, but the, really, the only thing I had to direct her... Well, we, we talked about the character very briefly, and I basically um, just said, you're like Mary Poppins, um, but with part of your brain missing. Like you're, you're, you're showing this little child these beautiful, wonderful things and going to these lands and things, but you you have no empathy. Like there's this part of your your you know you're you're stunted in in a, in a certain area. And she she for some somehow she really understood that. <laughs> That's a well. I want to talk about kind of another supporting character. You, the artist, with your style. Uh, I find very interesting that you you obviously retain your stick figure you know traditional style. But you do a lot more advanced art now, because I assume because it's going to uh, digital, a little more mm. capabilities. Did you always set out to blend the old style with the new? Was this, or is this a movie you wanted to do that with? 
Yeah, I think I, I think I did. I, um, I, I, I mean, I had been shooting on film and drawing on paper for, um, at the time, about 18 years. And um, I, uh, I think I was the last person in the United States to still be using these old animation cameras. And I, I wanted to, I just, I was just wanted to try something new. I wanted, because the, the previous, um, the feature film I had just finished putting all together and releasing, um, I was exhausted, you know, and I, I just didn't feel like I had any more to contribute to even uh, short films. And I, um, I wanted to shake everything up and do everything differently and, and shake off all of my habits and just throw myself into something different. And, um, I mean, in, in all that time, I had never drawn on a, on a tablet before. Um, and I wanted to see what that was like. So I got, um, I got a Cintiq um, thing, and um, I kind of started teaching myself the ropes. And um, two weeks after I bought this thing for World of Tomorrow is, is when the Simpsons got in touch um, to, to, to see if I could do a thing for them. And so I really hit the ground running because, you know, suddenly I had that to do as well on the same tool that I was figuring out on the, on the fly. Um, but um, what I primarily loved about it was just the speed. I, I mean, um, after working with the traditional stuff for so long, um, spending years on a single short, um, to be able to do The Simpsons and this in um, just about nine months to me was a miracle. Like that's like light speed for me. And I, I made a rule in, in trying to break all my habits and, and trying to just do something completely different. Um, I didn't want to fuss over World of Tomorrow. I didn't want to um, uh, worry too much about, uh, I didn't want to overbake it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I, I, I made a rule of, I didn't want to storyboard anything. I, I, and I, I just, I animated it just about chronologically, I think, and I uh, every day I would sit down and, and say, okay, where, where are we at the script? Okay, they're on the moon. What does that look like? What is you know? What are the shots going to be? Here's the dialogue. Where's the you know cuts? And I would just plot it all out from scratch, and not fuss. And as as soon as I kind of hit upon something, like that was it, and I just wanted to do it and move on because I wanted things to look very much like a children's book, very flat, very colorful, minimal textures. Um, but again, I just didn't want to like uh, sweat too long on it. I just wanted to keep things moving, and and I, I just felt a really great sense of momentum through the through the whole whole thing. So uh, let's go talk a little about your humor. Uh, another great uh, grandpa's digital consciousness resides in the cube, and he writes wonderful poetry. And I want to make sure I get this exactly right so he can dissect it. Oh, oh God, oh God, oh my God, Holy Mother of God, oh, oh, oh God. Uh, great poetry. Uh, so this is actually great because it really sets up Emily's disconnect, not, not knowing as part of your brain. Is that something you, you, you said all night you wanted to show her kind of missing part of her brain? Yeah, or just the complete, you know, like the lack of regard for the little girl's safety throughout the whole movie, you know, uh, just um, the, the selfishness of being a clone because, you know, it, it's... it's um, the only goal is living forever, but it's not really obviously... Somewhere along the line, the quality of life has, has disappeared, and the only goal is to selfishly keep perpetuating yourself. And I like the idea of clones being um, sort of like a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. Like you start to lose some resolution, and you start to lose some detail, and you know the copies start to get a little faulty and screwy upstairs. 
Uh, I also found it interesting you did a little uh, the class thing you, you threw in there, yeah. uh, especially like the lower. Let's see, for end of life procedure, our less affluent citizens, lower class faces the deceased loved one that can be peeled off, preserved, and stretched over the head of simple anatomic Did you want to discuss a little class in this oh, one because it comes up a few oh, different yeah. times? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's the future. I, I mean, it's the present. That's going to definitely be the future. I mean, you know, I, I mean, the the best of. Of humanity is always going to be reserved for the for the wealthiest people. I'm not surprised. That doesn't. Yeah, that's not no question. Um, uh, and and then you know the the poor people can't afford to escape the planet, so they're all they become shooting stars for the for the rich people. Um, yeah, and and the and the um, the brainless clone in the art museum. Um, that to me also seems inevitable. I don't know why. I, I um, that was I think actually even one of the earliest uh, seeds of the whole movie. That was one of the first things that I had written, and it was part of a graphic novel I released in 2013. That it's not very good, um, but the um, I, I, I illustrated this whole graphic novel on post-it notes because um, I didn't know how to do comic book layout. But I, 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 I like the yellow of a post-it note, and, uh, and so we, I, I drew everything really kind of small, and then we blew it up. And so every post-it note is like this on the page, and it's very gritty, and you can see the grain. Um, and because that story came from, from that source, I was used to seeing it in yellow, and so I just kept it kind of yellow and grainy uh, in the movie version of that story. But... Um, I don't remember where that came from, but I feel like it was partially part of a dream. Um, and, but it just seemed so inevitable that as soon as we can clone things, you know, some pretentious artist is going to you know, put a living thing in a, in a, on display you know, to, to make some weird statement about the uh, ephemeral nature of art or whatever. And, um, it, just, it just made a lot of sense. And I just wanted to be the first one to write it down before someone wanted <laughs> so to it. I did love the fact that she, uh, she not only fell in love with rock, she did fall in love mm-hmm. with David, so mm-hmm. kind of an emotional disconnect. Uh, for some reason, as soon as I were watching it, I, we couldn't stop laughing at your scene with the, when uh, Emily draws a snake boy <laughs> and the other the triangle. And then, then Emily probably just goes into wiggle, wiggle, wiggle. Is that something what she just did to you, like you were talking to her and suddenly she was just like, I'm just wiggling? Yeah, I mean, well, that is the experience as best as I could uh, replicate it of talking to a four-year-old. I mean, you know, <laughs> half the time you have no idea what they're talking about. And I, and I, liked, I liked that. I, you know, I liked the fact that you, know, you, you, you think they're listening, but they're kind of like just looking at a color. <laughs> you, know, you try and impart wisdom, but you just realize it's, it's, you know, they're st- you know, she's, she's thinking about her, her, her drink. Um, you know, uh, and, and I remember telling Julia about this, too, because I, as soon as I recorded, and Winona's the name of my niece, by the way, as soon as I recorded Winona, I, I knew that she was going to be the, the, the secret weapon of this whole endeavor, um, I mean, the movie, you know, it's, it's dark, it's gloomy at times. I mean, it's, it's a comedy, but it's really, it's really, there's a lot going on. But, you know, I, I just, I knew that she was this ray of sunshine. And every time she opened her mouth, everything would be lifted and, and, uh, and sunny again. And um, what was too bad for Julia was, I mean, she's really carries the whole movie. I mean, Julia says most of the lines. She's got all of this chunky, chunky exposition I have her say. And she does it so well. And, and I just kept I was telling her while we were recording, you know, no matter 
how good you are in this, you're going to be constantly upstaged by a four-year-old. I'm just warning <laughs> you right now. You're funny, you're brilliant, but you're going to say all this stuff, and then all Winona has to do is say, shoes! And everyone's going to laugh, and go, ah! You know, and, and, and Julia's just like, you know, in the back again. Um, all right, so we're going to recite some more poetry. Uh, light is a life, robot must move, move, robot, move, robot. But why? Move, 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 <laughs> robot forever move. How did you land that whole sequence? Because I thought it was great, the visuals too, the robots like running away from the dark side. How did that come about? Um, wow, that was part of a very old script that I had written about... Um, oh, boy. It, it, this, I mean, this was very, 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 very old. But it was, at some point, there were these children living on the moon... And um, what I recall from this story was their children said they were afraid of the dark. And so they had to keep moving to get away from the dark side because there were monsters in the dark. And so uh, they had to keep moving their encampments on on the moon. Um, And that's where that movement originated. Um, And I, I, I like it as just the idea of, you know, they're programmed to be afraid of the dark, but they don't know why. And um, they're afraid of dying, but they don't know why. And it, it really um, kind of, I think, struck a nice chord with the humans in the story who are very, very similarly just automatically programmed to be afraid of the dark and afraid of, 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 of death and at any cost. You know, upload yourself, you know, clone yourself, avoid at all costs, but not really sure what the end goal is. Um, and and so the robots just always moving. I just like the idea that they're still up there somewhere, and <laughs> but they're sensitive enough to be able to write to us. I did like the fact that Emily was again no empathy. Yeah, that just that she left the robots behind, didn't care. Exactly. Yeah. Right. As a matter of fact. And Emily Prime, of course, would care. Yes. Yeah, because she liked robots. She said. Uh, okay. I, just to interrupt you real quickly, as soon as she says. Um, I, we, we, I, she talked about robots on her own while we were hanging out, and I was just like, yes! Because <laughs> I think we were drawing robots. She started drawing robots. I'm like, yeah, do that. Some more. And then I was like, do, do you like robots? And she's like, yeah, I always like robots. I've got a red robot and a pink robot. And I was like, yes! So the one time... The yeah, sometimes it, I got cold because it just fell the, the right, way. right away. It just fell the right way. So uh, I also love Simon. Uh, mm. And uh, Emily Prime gets bumped in the head by Simon. I'm wondering, is that a little seed of Billy's balloon, perhaps, or some of your early things? And what's oh, going on with Simon probably, now? I don't know. That was just I, they needed some sort of interaction, and I didn't know what else to do. But so he just grew an arm and smacked her a few times. And I think I also had a take. I, want, I also think I had a take of Winona saying, "Hey, stop it." So I wanted it to be something annoying. I think right. I should actually preface that that was probably why he did that. Um, and, and Simon was voiced by my best friend in the world, uh, Sarah, uh, who also lives in Austin. She, but she also was a UCSB student. And um, I had originally thought I would try that voice, but I didn't like anything I did. And then I realized I wanted, I really wanted the whole movie to be voiced by women. Because um, there's not a male voice in the whole thing, and there's something really great about that. And, um, and so Simon is Sarah... And she was, uh, and she was sick when I recorded her, and so that's why Simon coughs when he when he comes out. He's got that little cough. Um, uh, but I liked I liked the idea of the two of them um, because, you know, we see Emily learning what it's like to be human um, and learning what it's like to love things and have emotions, and so, um, and like all I think all of us go through, you know, in adolescence, you fall in love with things that aren't right for you. 
Um, so there's the, you know, the rock and then the pump and then <laughs> one sentient being, um, which I feel like, you know, at some point when you graduate to other relationships, um, somewhere, along the line, you're, uh, somewhere along the line you're going to destroy somebody emotionally. Like you don't intend to, but you, you know, abandon them or something. Um, and so I just wanted that in there too where you see, you know, Simon get crushed. Um, and so many people, I just, I just love the fact that, that he's on screen for like 10, 15 seconds, <laughs> yeah, but it's such a chord. Because yeah. I think everybody's, I mean, everybody's gone through that. So. I love Simon. And uh, it's interesting because so we have in the fuel pump, the rock, uh, the David. Now she actually finds a husband. Mm-hmm. So she's a little emotionally involved. Did you find that, that was your point? You wanted the progression to get to the point where she actually has a normal, semi-healthy relationship with an yeah, yeah, older clone know, that's they, you know, deteriorating? What's the line? I loved him as though we were originals. Originals. Uh, as um, an older clone, he showed many signs of deterioration. Oh, you've got her right But there. I loved him as though we were originals. Do you have the whole script on every clone? I love no because I usually don't quote, but it's such a great, there's so many great lines in this. And actually, funny, Thank but you. also poignant. I mean, Thank you. A, yeah, I, I, yeah, well, yeah, I do my best. <laughs> so you wanted to give her a, help, a happy, semi-happy life, a husband and, you know. Yeah, and then, you know, you learn, you know, you, you hurt somebody and then you learn what it's like to be hurt. Or, you know, you, you learn what it's like to mourn something. I mean, that's very human, too, you know, learning about loss. And, um, and you know, he, he dies suddenly and then suddenly, she, you know, her, this, the sadness, the depression is what makes her feel more alive. Because that, you know, I've, I've, I've always liked the... Um, Oh, there's a there's a quote. I think it's from that the prophet that that famous book, the prophet. Um, it says, um, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like the the uh, the deeper sadness carves into your soul, the more joy you can contain. And I've always I've always really liked that because I you know I usually in life, the the people you meet who've gone through the most horrible things or the, have gone through depression or loss or whatever it is, they always seem more interesting or they always seem more grateful or, or uh, uh, you know, I just don't trust people who are happy all the time. You know, it doesn't, they just don't seem real. There's something wrong with that, you know, because I, I, and I, I really think that, you know, we, we live in a world where it's not right to be sad. It's not okay to be sad. You, you know, you should be on medication. You know, you should, every, you should, why aren't you happy all the time? And I, you know, um, and I, you know, sadness is like a really necessary thing. I mean, we all saw inside out, right? Um, uh, and I think there's some truth to that. Uh, so, uh, I, I just like, I just, I, I just wanted to have that in there about, about her growing through because of depression. All right, so we, we, you mentioned about our low classes, and I love the meteor shower scene. Uh, okay. And Emily Prime keeps saying, oh, are they okay? No, they're dead. They all die horribly. <laughs> is, is that your final back to, let's get Emily, the adult, disconnected again from reality? Because you gave her a little you know, romance and heart, but now we're mm. back to... Yeah, I, I, I think, she, I mean, she's got flickers, you know. Uh, she, you know, it's, it's, it's there, but it's, it's a low flame. You know, and I don't think she, you know, I don't know if she'll ever learn because I, I think what the, I think my arc for arc, I don't, I don't like using screenwriting terms at all, oh, yeah. <laughs> but my, my narrative arc for her um, was um, at the end of it all, she was finally okay with just dying. You know, she didn't save herself. Yeah. You know, everyone else was desperately trying to escape, but she finally um, was okay with just staying there. And, and that I think was, was kind of her, her closure. Uh, yeah, you're alive and living now. Now is the envy of all the dead. That's mm. a great way, I think, to end Emily. 
Mm. Uh, I like that line too. I like that. Line too. <laughs> so, is it, would you always land on this? Is how you wanted her to end her, her storyline, or that kind of evolve with you know working with the voice actor and? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think so. Uh, and and that line, I'm trying to remember where that came from. There's a few. I think there's a few. I, I remember seeing. Um, I think there's a very well-known Latin phrase that's on like a lot of um, tombs and uh, a lot of crypts and things, and it says, and there's usually like an engraving of a skeleton, and it says like as um, as you are now, I once was; as I am now, you one day will be. And it's just one of those things where you're just like, <laughs> uh, and and I've that's always stuck with me, and and. And then I remember um, there's a line in Full Metal Jacket where uh, Private Joker says, um, the dead only know one thing, it is better to be alive. <laughs> um, and I think it's some sort of combination of those, of those ideas. But of course you had to go back. Thank you, Emily Prime. It's been an honor to meet you and a joy to emerge you from your third generation birth canal. <laughs> so you gave us back our humor. Um, okay, so we're, we're all happy. Oh, it looks like she found. And then you put Emily Prime in the planet, scaring us to death that you're now going to kill her off. <laughs> you just want to mess with us a little or give us a um, little fear? Or? Yeah, she goes back to the Ice Age. Um, <laughs> I mean, I come from... Um, I mean, you're going you're gonna to see Billy's Balloon if you haven't already. I mean, I come from a very... Um, comedy-driven, gag-driven background uh, and it, it was just too good of a gag to pass up <laughs> um, and uh and i mean i had planted it earlier and i just i i i loved the idea of 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 putting her there and and just what was very interesting was it took a while to edit that sequence because i i was trying to figure out how long i was going to leave her there um <laughs> To just, it had to be long enough to make the audience think maybe she's stuck there, and then you know she's Emily realizes her mistake and she sends her to the right place. Um, for maybe five minutes, I thought I could end the movie there and just like leave her there. And I was like, well, "What the hell would the point of that be?" Um, uh, and then, it, it, but it bothered me mainly because it didn't make any logical sense. Because then the whole time would be unraveled, and none of that would have made sense. Um, so that one out, thank God. Um, um, but it, it, it was interesting because it wasn't going to be that long, but then it had to be longer and longer because it, it really needed to sit. Um, and then I have the sad music come in um, before... before uh, yeah, but then you end with What a Happy Day and the great yeah, talking over the credits. So yeah, you're back to your knees. That was, um, that was the heart-melting moment. I mean, one of many that my niece threw out there. Um, uh, and... I, 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 the movie premiered at Sundance, and um, I barely finished it in time. And I had I had another recording of my niece because I had all this spare stuff, this spare cute stuff that I put over the credits, where she's like outside and talking to herself. And um, I had a really nice recording of her outside um, saying, um, I think it was just like, um, "What a lovely day outside," but just in in her. She does it better than me. Um, but, uh, and so I thought, like, okay, well, after Sundance, 
I kind of want to do like a post-credit shot where she's just like sitting on like a nice green hill or something outside and she can just be like, what a lovely day outside. Um, but then it, it won the grand prize and I was like, I'm not changing a thing right now. Um, but I, I still had that, you know, that was a, a really nice recording. And then, but I had a lot of other leftovers and then I, I recorded her in 2014 and, um, and she had really changed. Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, I didn't know what I was going to get the first time. Let's just record her again. And, um, her voice was lower. No, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> She, she was, but she was suddenly like directing me. Like suddenly, like it was no longer this sense of wide-eyed wonder about the world and reactive stuff. It was these long paragraphs, and it was like we were playing, and she'd just be like, "Okay, you're the gorilla. I'm the ice princess. We're on, we're in the underground caves, and we have to save the cucumber people." And it was like, it was like this. It was like the, the the insanity of childhood. Like this is like, where is this coming from? And I was thinking, like at the time, like I got these re- recordings of her, but I'm like what am I going to do with this? Because like, before I could edit around and, and just have reactions and, and make something of that. And suddenly there was, she was the one with all the long paragraphs. Um, but I'm, I'm figuring something out. I'm, I think I'm finding a way. And I think, um, and, and I recorded again last December. Um, so we might be doing some sort of boyhood thing here. Um, I'm not <laughs> okay. sure. Um, but, um, what, what did your niece think of the movie? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. <laughs> Um, my, so she was, like I said, she was four when I made it, and then I went off and made it for like nine months, so she was five by the time it was finished, and, I mean, we never told her I was recording her. Oh. Because, I mean, she wouldn't understand anyway. I mean, I didn't know how cartoons were made back then, and I barely know now. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I didn't want to freak her out, you know, I didn't want to make her aware and self-conscious, you know, I want to be really non-intrusive, so I, um, I didn't... I, at the time when it was finished, I was hesitant to show it to her or, or even let her know it was it existed because I didn't want her to not trust me anymore. Nah. You know, I didn't want her to think I was, you know, I stole her voice. And, you know, <laughs> I, uh, and uh, so I was hesitant. Um, but my brother was just like, I just show it to her. You know, who cares? <laughs> um, so um, I wasn't there when they watched it. Um, but it was what was interesting was um, she. I mean, she enjoyed it. And she, she understood that it was her. You know, she recognized her own voice. But she didn't understand why people laughed when she talked. Aww. Because she doesn't, you know, she's not trying to be funny. Um, uh, and what was... She, uh, so she did finally see the movie. And, um, and I, you know, I, I Skype with her every now and then. And um, uh, her favorite animated film is Frozen. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and uh, but I'm working on that. I, you know, um, um, I, uh, I mean, they get to them so young. They get to them so young. Um, and like half the time we're recording, she won't shut up about Anna and Elsa, and, and it's just over and over. Um, but um, yeah. Well, we're going to go back to your origins a little before we open the audience, but I do have to ask about the Simpsons experience. Oh, yeah. What was that like when they gave you the call? We want you to do the opening. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? Well, that was incredible. Um, I, uh, I mean, I'm old enough to have seen it. I mean, I remember when it premiered, you know, when I was like sure. 12 or something, and that was the biggest thing in the world, that I had the bootleg T-shirts from the flea market. And um, <laughs> it was... Um, I mean, I don't do a lot of um, 
stuff like that, but um, I would I just I couldn't turn that down. I mean, that's like that was my 12 year old self dream. Um, and um, what was kind of interesting, I guess, was um, a friend of mine um, is a uh, Bill Bill Plumpton is a uh, indie animator who's um, he's done a couple of those Simpsons gags, and he's. Um, I mean, I, I remember seeing his stuff in the theater when I was a kid, and he was pretty legendary in the late '80s, also. Um, and but anyway, he was telling me um, about his Simpsons stuff years ago, um, and he was just like, "Yeah, you know, what's crazy is, um, you know, I've been an independent animator since like 1987, and more people saw my work in one night on The Simpsons <laughs> than in all that time combined." And I was like, "Oh man, like, that's kind of a lot of pressure, also. Jeez." Like, and, and just knowing Bill, I, I just, the idea goes in your head like, geez, you know, I wonder what I would do if they ever asked me to do something like that. And it's just an idea in your back of your head for however long, and months would go by, and I was just like, I can't think of anything. So thank God they've not, you know, they're not going to ask me any. Um, and then fast forward years later, they do ask me, I was like, okay, um, I want to do something, but I've actually kind of thought about this already in life. And... Um, let me get back to you because let me just—I just wanted to make sure I do something cool. Um, and what was so weird was the fact of them calling um, was just the, like a bowling ball to the head of, of, of pressure and motivation. And like I had the idea in 24 hours, um, you know, despite having chewed on it, you know, casually for all that time. Um, but what was so great about them was. Um, I mean, they, they knew who I was. They knew where I was coming from. Um, and they knew I pretty much work alone. And I was, uh-huh. I'm in Austin, and they're in um, Hollywood. And, um, and, and so they said, okay, well, here's how it usually works. You know, give us a pitch, just like a sentence of what, you know, a paragraph, what you want to do. And then we say okay to that, and then do storyboards, and we say okay to that, and then the animatic. And I was like, well, guys, like, I don't, you know, I've never done an animatic I, you know, I do storyboards a little bit, but I mean, I can do that for you. But like, I, could I just do something? You know, I mean, I gave them the, the paragraph, <laughs> and they're like, "Oh, this is interesting." Uh, and then, um, <laughs> and I was like, "But can you, let me just do it. And if you don't like it, I'll change it." You know, because I, I it's for me, my stuff doesn't really work on the page. It doesn't make much sense all the time, and it's it's more of like an energy thing that you kind of have to see. Um, and, and I didn't want to have to go through these very artificial, rigid stages and where it's not going to be very funny yet. Um, and so they, it, you know, they let me do it. Um, to their credit, um, they, you know, they just um, hands off. And I finished this thing. And um, uh, they, they animated... I wish we could show it now. I wish I had brought it. Um, but they, I kept the intro of Homer running onto the couch like the episodes always start with. And then there's a bit on the couch... That I they animated, but I completely re-edited to to get a certain pace going, and then I did the entire sound mix. And then after that point, I did absolutely everything except um, the only note they had was um, oh boy, I, I don't know how many of you guys have actually seen this thing, but um, it's 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 in the it's deep in the future and. Um, it's, it's sort of like what happens in The Simpsons just never stops. It's like the longest running show on TV and what happens if it just keeps going for another thousand years. And I've always <laughs> thought it was weird how, you know, it's been on the air for 25 years or whatever, 
but the characters never age. And I was like, does Bart have memories from 20 years ago, even though he's like supposed to be eight? Like, I, I never understood this universe. Um, yet they, the drawings have evolved since like the Tracy Ullman show. They look sure. very different. So I'm like, okay, so they never age, but they evolve kind of, the artwork. And so in My Simpsons Future, they're like all these weird tentacled things. And um, they're kind of bootleg versions of The Simpsons. And it's terrible. Like, it's just terrible like it's this future we can't comprehend of television where everything's and so my the point of this was um all the voice talent i wanted to be long dead and so it's just bootleg voices coming out of these vaguely familiar (laughs) characters so i i did all these crazy voices also for it and so the only note they had i mean i'm surprised they let all of this craziness go um (laughs) but the only note they had was matt graining wanted a little more of the simpsons voices back in there um, and um, and so uh, <laughs> so we, uh, we had I, I got I, and again I'm working entirely in Austin so they just sent me the voice tracks of of um, of Homer doing my ridiculous lines and I, I put them into my mix and then um, we had a little bit of Marge put back in there and Marge's lines were um, oh God. <laughs> It was, um, all animals can scream, (laughs) and I think all hail the dark lord of the twin moons. (laughs) And uh, so I got Julie Kavner's (laughs) sessions of her saying this, and 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 they're just like, take one, (laughs) take two, take three. And I'm just thinking, this poor woman, she has no idea what any of this is, and 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 so we, you know, I got her in the mix, and that was that was the only note they had. They let you know they let it all go, and it was way too long. It, it was like the longest opening they'd ever done at the time, and they um, they let it go for as long as it was. They they actually reduced the the, the running time of that episode to make it fit. Um, and um, it was just it was just crazy. It was really I I think I mean they're. They're just a bunch of cool, nerdy art dudes, you know, and they've got so much power in there now. They don't answer yeah. to anybody. And, and so, but what's weird is I've not ever met any of them. Like, oh, we, you know, we've, we Skyped like once and it's just been email. And, um, I, you know, it's just strange this, you know, how technology can do this. You, you can do the whole thing in Austin. And um, I even played the piano. Um, you can. There's a piano. There's a Chopin piece at the end that I that I played, and I was actually more proud of that because I got to play piano on TV <laughs> than, than the piece. Um, and it, just one more thing about this because I know I'm what? talking about it way too much. But like the weirdest thing about that experience was, like I, I I directed it, I wrote it, I did these crazy voices, I did the sound mix, I edited it, all this stuff. The only time we ran into guild trouble was because I played the piano. Um, and they wanted um, and they wanted to re-record the piano because I wasn't a union musician, and I was like, no, please, please, I, I really want to play piano on TV. Um, and so we had to sign all this paperwork to to allow allow my piano track to go through. Oh. It was it was uh, that was the only weird thing after. Uh, By the way, once before we show Billy's Bloom, we can find it online. What's on YouTube? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we want. If you want. Uh, okay, so we're gonna go back to uh, before we open up. We show Billy's and hopefully the Simpsons. Uh, let's go back to your origins. Let's go back. You're a freshman at UCSB, uh, right here. Did you yeah. always want to get into animation, or did you did you have any idea about it, or something um, happened here? Uh, nothing happened. No, I was. Um, well, I, I've always wanted to make movies. 
uh, I don't know why, but I mean, from my very earliest memory, uh, I remember seeing The Empire Strikes Back when I was like four or five in the theater, and it was just bigger than anything I could have ever imagined. For whatever reason, I've always wanted to make movies. Like, there was no other option. Like, you know, when you write down what you want to make or what you want to be when you grow up, I was, there was never anything but movies. Um, and I animated in high school on, on VHS tapes. Uh, I got this weird little camera that could actually do frame by frame. Um, but I always thought I would get into live action. Um, and uh, I, I, fast forward, I went to school here after teaching myself some very basic animation. Um, and in the 90s, it was uh, uh, 16 millimeter still. And I, I realized I couldn't afford it. Because um, when, you, when you shoot live action, you need a lot of takes. And I couldn't afford um, to buy all the 16 millimeter cans of film that you would need to do that. But I had done some animation in high school, and I had l- known a little things, and I realized there was an animation camera on campus, this beautiful little 16-millimeter camera in um, not just the bowels of Buchanan Hall, <laughs> but like the bowels of the bowels. Like it was in way back in the deepest, darkest, bowely corner. Um, there was this, this beautiful little camera, and, um, and I, I met Dana Driscoll, and... Um, uh, I think I was in the beginning production class at the time, and um, and it was primarily live action. And I and I, I remember I remember asking him. I remember where we were when I asked him this. We were up in the in the bowels of Buchanan, <laughs> and I and I he was showing me this camera. I think with some other kids, and and I was like, could I animate my 105 project? Like, does that count? And, and luckily, Dana loved animation, and, and he was like, oh, well, yeah, of course, if, you know, it counts. I don't think anybody had really done that before. And, um, and that, you know, I think that was enough to, to set me going, because if he said, hell no, you know, I don't, I don't know what would have happened. I would have, you know, tried to do a bad live action thing, and maybe, you know, I, I'd, I'd be working in an airport right now or something. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so I did, I did a, a freshman year, um, a two-minute cartoon, uh, on that camera, and um, and it got picked up for nationwide distribution in, in animation festivals, and it was like it was like crazy, and then um, and then I made three more films here, and and they were all on that camera, and eventually it just turned into an independent study where I had the key to the building, and it, it was just me in the middle of the night with an armful of CDs going into the bowels um, of Buchanan by myself, you know, two in the morning, over and over again to shoot. Um, and the campus is beautiful at night. You know, it's just, it's just, it was just me and, and families of raccoons <laughs> running around. And we just kind of, you know, look at each other. And it's like, yeah, I'm coming back. Um, but it was very, you know, it was very peaceful. It was very, it was very yeah, cool. the same family of raccoons are still here. Yeah, they I'm always sure. come at me oh, when great, I leave here great, at night. Great, 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 great grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> or clones. Impregnated <laughs> clothes. All right, so I've had too much fun, so it's now time for you guys to have fun. We have mics coming out, so raise your hand. I'll call on you. Uh, please wait for the mic, though, because it's actually very hard to hear up here. So while we wait for the mic, I, sh- I just want to mention that um, so Billy's balloon um, uh, got into the Cannes Film Festival. That's the <laughs> official competition. I'm not making this up. The official competition of the, of the, of the, fan, Cannes, film, the Cannes Film Festival. I had to... Um, I had to get permission from my other film studies teachers to skip class so I could go to the Cannes Film Festival oh to support my student film. 
And I got a, I got a B on it. I'm just oh. saying. I'm just, I think I, I, it might have been a B plus, but Dana gave me a B on it. I'm just, I just want to throw that out there. So your two latest movies focus a lot on time, whether it's Bill learning about like the physics of time and it's such a beautiful day and it really like changing his perspective, or the literal time travel and world of tomorrow. And I was just wondering, what keeps drawing you to this theme that like keeps popping up over and over again in your movies? Sure. I mean, I think The Simpsons are kind of about that too. Um, uh, I'm, I don't, you know, I don't really don't know. You know, it's it's things that. Um, I mean, I've never written a movie about something that I'm not interested in. Um, I, I mean, maybe that seems like a dumb and obvious thing to say, but I, I think so many of these, um, I mean, a lot of the time for me, you know, looking back at them, because it's been 20 years now, and there's, there's quite a few now, um, a lot of them to me are almost like time capsules of what I was thinking about at the time, what I was maybe worried about, um, dreams I had, whatever, you know, I, I, I see like, you know, little glimmers of myself in 2006 in this one. And in this one, it's like a, a, an image of me in 2001 or whatever. Um, uh, and so it's, it's sometimes hard for me to see the, the themes between the movies because it's just things that I'm interested in, things I'm, I'm curious about exploring somehow. Uh, but I, I've always been interested in memory too, you know. It's such a strange. It's just it's such a strange um, idea of, of like you know because we take it so much for granted, um, but really memories are very very um, imperfect. You know that we 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 think we remember something, but it's actually some simulation that our heads have put together and what's fascinated me also is is you know when someone says they want to live forever you know whether it's world of tomorrow or somebody who just doesn't want to die and it's such a beautiful day um what they really mean is um uh, they want a continuation of, of their memory of their experience because if i said okay oh hey you can live for another 200 years but we're going to reset you um, that's not really attractive, you know. We, you know, it's it's um, you don't want to you want to bring your your memories with you, and because really, in a certain way, that is who you are. You know, your memories, your experiences. Somehow, that is the sum total of of what you are as a person, um, uh, and and that is really weird and interesting to me. And I, I, I guess it's just. Um, uh, maybe it's a sign of a lazy artist who keeps re- repeating and revisiting the same thing. But I think there's a lot to explore there for, for whatever reason. Right, we have time for one more before we move out into the lobby and for food. Let's go that there's food? There we have food. food. Really? We have a reception for you oh. and the students uh, so we can continue the conversation. What, what kind of food do you have? We've got some very nice pastries, some very no nice uh, oh, fruit right. platter. We have some Great. hummus. We have some, uh, some delicious food. We find students like food. It's like really it. weird. Okay, let's feed them. <laughs> let's see what they eat. Um, I just noticed that in World of Tomorrow and in Billy's Balloon, I thought it was kind of interesting that you have like your protagonists, like they're both children, and like I know that there's a certain amount of like lack of agency that's associated with that, but they both seem to play very like kind of observant roles. They're like in these environments where violence and stuff are kind of passively being presented to them, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know what like compelled you to write characters like that. Boy, I think um, 
I think it's something very similar to something I read Steven Spielberg actually say once, because he's always got kids in danger in his movies. And I think it was something like, you know, the cheapest, easiest way to get an emotional response is just to put a child in danger. (laughs) It's just really lazy. Um, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. Well, actually, I'm so proud of you. There's kind of some kids in danger, too. Um, I mean, to me, Billy's Balloon is just a Roadrunner cartoon. It, you know, to me, it is almost beside the point that he's a little kid. It's just, it's just easy because he's just, it's just a passive thing, a person. <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I even think, um, I, 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 I really think actually a lot of that was Buster Keaton and just, and, and actually going to see a lot of the Buster Keatons in, in film school here. Um, just, um, there's a gag in oh gosh, which it's the short um, where the, he's got like the the prefabricated house with his with his newly his new bride, and um, there's a point where the house is on the train tracks. And does everyone know what I'm talking? Anyone know what I'm talking about at all? One week, one week, yeah. And and there's a there's a house on the train tracks, and they're like oh I gotta push the house off the train tracks, and the train's coming. And then um, they run out of the way just at the last minute, but the train goes by. There's like a parallel set of tracks. And they're just like, oh, phew, you know, that was close. And then like another train comes out of nowhere from the other direction and just blows up the whole house. And I always thought that was the funniest gag in the world. Um, and that's, that's just the airplane in Billy's Balloon just coming out of nowhere. Um, it's, it's just little things like that. I think Billy's Balloon and a lot of my stuff is... Um, and this is such a tangent, I'm sorry from your question, but it, a lot of it just seems very silent film-inspired because um, I, I just loved how it was just a static, usually a static camera, um, and you know they hadn't really developed a lot of cross-cutting yet, and it was just like, you usually just have a static camera, and then some vaudeville guy comes out and does this thing in like a long take, and it's just like that long take of, of just, um, it, builds, it builds a lot of tension. Um, and I, I've always liked that, but sorry, that's a long tangent. <laughs> well, we always end our show with the same question. Oh, okay. Uh, if so I go to heaven, what do I want? <laughs> no, uh, no, 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 no. No. Uh, if you're cloned and you're telling you no. Uh, no, the question is, uh, can you tell us maybe about a childhood movie theater experience you had going to the movies that maybe inspired you, a film that you remember fondly or something going with your family? Something oh, that impacted you. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I remember a few. Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned Empire Strikes Back. And then I remember, though, going to a lot of movies I shouldn't have gone to. Um, I, I, one was, we went, I was very young. Well, this was 1982, so I was probably like five, or five, five years old. And we were going to go see Star Trek II. No, 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 this was 1980. Sorry, this is not interesting, my age. But I was probably four or five. So we were going to go to the drive-in to see Star Trek II. And we got there, and the lot was full for Star Trek II. Oh. And my dad was like, well, we're not going home, as dads are. Of course. So we're like, well, what, what can we see? Okay, Conan the Barbarian, which was in the other one. This is like rated R. There's like naked women and blood and gore. So we just go to that one. And I, I fell asleep, but I do remember seeing James Earl Jones turn into the giant snake guy. Um, but that became a thing, I think, like years later, I remember, because my dad loved science fiction. He was a fan of the original Alien um, when that came out, and my mom would not go to those movies with him. Um, so he took me. <laughs> and so I saw, um, 
I saw Aliens when that came out when I was 10. And it just, I mean, it was amazing, but it scared the hell out of me. I saw, I saw the original RoboCop, which is incredibly violent. We saw Predator together, like all these hardcore R movies that are just, but such great science fiction. And I think that really, you know, just... Um, you know, I, I think maybe on some level you're always trying to impress your parents, and you know, just it was very, very cool to to be dragged to those. Um, for whatever reason, he never, he never took my brother either, because my brother's older than me. But he, <laughs> he took. I just realized this now. He took the youngest one to go see heads exploding and, and naked breasts and things. So now uh, I know where Billy's balloon came from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you for being such an inspiration to our students here today. Oh, it, no, it, worry. no, no worries. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> you are proof that you can find what you do and be successful at it as long as you, uh, you follow your dream. Oh, so. really? You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.